Creative Babble. Hello, everyone. So, we've made it. Episode 11. I have to admit, I had no idea what to expect when I first started this show. I mean, half of the stories I had planned for you either fell through or just were dropped because they weren't good enough. This also happens to be the last episode of Season 1 of Pretend Radio. No, 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 don't be sad. I already started working on Season 2 and have a couple episodes already in the can. It's just going to be a short break, I promise. So here we are, the last episode of Season 1. This one's a little different. It's a little different because it wasn't produced by me. In fact, it was reported by my new pod friend, Lainey Hobbs, from the True Crime Fan Club podcast. When I first listened to this episode, I knew you guys would love it. This is a true story about a bigamist whose name is William Allen Jordan. A bigamist is someone who has more than one spouse. Usually, the spouses don't know about each other. That's why it's illegal in most Western countries. So, who the heck falls for a bigamist? I mean, wouldn't you think it's weird that your partner goes missing for long periods of time? I mean, come on. I've heard urban legends before about this, but I've never heard of a real person admit to being conned by one. Well, you're about to meet someone who married a bigamist and was wrapped up in so many lies that it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Mary is a very strong woman. And I'll be honest, I had some preconceived notions that she was going to be some fool claiming she fell for love because she was desperately lonely and insecure. That is until I spoke with her, and I realized then that what happened to Mary can happen to anyone. So I'd sort of been on my own for a few months, um, and one of my friends said to me, why don't you try internet dating? This newfangled thing in the year 2000, this is the new way to meet people. Uh, and being a single mom and full-time working and everything else, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. What could go wrong? Um, I, I, I sort of took a long time to actually think about what I would say on a profile. I, I took a long time, you know, saying, well, I like dancing and I like these books and I like, you know, these are the things I like and the kind of guy I'm looking for. I want to be certainly a friend first. So, um, you know, not looking for, for diving into anything deeply very fast. Uh, you know, sort of very, I, I really thought very carefully about it and put together what I thought was a, you know, pretty straightforward. This is who I am. This is, this is what I like. And, uh, this is who I'm looking for. But I, and I sort of looked through the profiles. I actually, I met three different, uh, guys, uh, in the space of about six months. I kind of just dropped it and gave up. Uh, and then a, a month or two later, I just got this email from somebody who, who I hadn't seen a profile of or anything else, but he just wrote to me and saying, long flowing letter about, uh, being American and mixed race and, uh, you know, just all sorts of things. But he also said that he had mumps as a child. And so he, you know, if, if expanding my family, uh, was on the cards, then he was not the right guy because he was infertile and couldn't have children. Um, I was quite impressed by how honest and open he was in that email. Will Jordan is mixed race, with brown hair, brown eyes, and has an athletic build. He told Mary he was an American who was living in the UK, chasing his career around the globe, as he put it, 
He owned his own IT consulting firm and was attracted to Mary's independence as it mirrored his own. He was interested in pursuing a relationship further with her, and so they flirted and shared their mutual interests with each other. Uh, we talked for about two weeks. Um, I was bit nervous about um, online dating. I've never done it before. I was, I was, you know, didn't know how, how safe it was or anything else. And uh, so it was all very, very new technology to me. So I didn't really think I should meet him too quickly. I, I needed to find out more about him. So we talked online for about two weeks, um, talking about the books we liked and uh, the, the, the music we liked. And there was so much we had in common. It just sort of, it just seemed to click, really click on, on just on the internet. And then it was about two weeks later, we swapped phone numbers and he, uh, eventually called me. <laughs> it's like, we met, I think, in early December 2000, uh, for the first time, uh, having lunch in a public place, etc. Um, and, uh, when I met him, he was exactly as I thought he would be. He was tall, he was dark, he was handsome, he was, he was, I mean, not, not God's gift, but good looking. Um, nice looking, and just a really, really seemed like a really, really nice person. We just had so much in common. It was just, yeah, it was just sparks were flying um, from the very beginning. I was very cautious and very sort of, I'm, I'm actually very happy with my life. I'm enjoying my life. You know, to take somebody into my life and have a boyfriend or have a, you know, someone, especially when my daughter was going to have to be somebody who's going to have to stand out and be really quite special because my life was pretty good already. So somebody would really have to improve it. Um, and he seemed to fit the bill. He, he had this kind of calm, mature, um, solid, reliable attitude about him that, uh, I really liked. So yeah, that first date was quite, uh, quite memorable. And he kissed me at the end of the date. Um, and I, I sort of didn't, didn't dive into it. I kind of pulled back a bit. Um, but he, he was obviously very keen and immediately texted me afterwards saying his feet hadn't touched the ground since. This was all too much for Mary. As she said, she wasn't really looking for love. She was successful, confident, happy, and she had a child that deserved her time and attention. But Will was just so great, so kind, and obviously falling deeply in love with her. He ticked all the right boxes. He he came across as the kind of person who you just go, that's what I was looking for. That's the kind of person... But he was very, very keen and it, it made me hesitate a bit. And I did sort of, I was quite resistant. He was the one that was constantly pushing the relationship forward. He was the one that was, said he loved me first. He was the one that, you know, he seemed to, seemed to sort of have this, um, urgency about him that every, he, he just thought immediately he'd found his soulmate. And, you know, it told me that and told me how, how, you know, this was it. He'd been waiting all his life for, for him to meet me. Um, and the fact I already had a daughter as well and he couldn't have any children was just magical. And that made all the difference as well. Um, you know, that we already had a family and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a problem for me not having any more. Despite her hesitation, Mary was willing to take that leap and make everything official. The decision to move forward in a relationship with William Jordan would change her life forever. It was quite very, very serious, very quickly. Um, and, you know, that the, I mean, he would send me flowers, a dozen roses to the, to the office, um, you know, so that all my office workers would see that someone was, was interested in me. He would send, you know, love notes. He would say he would leave me messages. He would do all sorts of, you know, really sweet things, the sort of things you see in, in romance movies. Um, 
yeah, the, the, it was all sort of terribly romantic and terribly, you know, sort of, it, it sort of swept you along, uh, even though it was sort of quicker than I would normally want to move. You know, he, he was very confident and, and his confidence sort of swept me along. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's odd looking back now. It's 17 years ago now for me. So it's, it's kind of weird looking back. Life with Will was on the fast track and Mary knew owning his own firm would mean that he was often called away for business. She would sometimes get aggravated by the inconvenience of it all and try to understand that Will was a busy man. Then in December of 2000, after missing a rather important trip, he proposed to her. Mary said that she would have to think about it, but in the meantime, Will asked her to continue wearing the ring. Eventually, Mary would say yes. She, of course, had expressed hesitation upon first talking to him, but their romance was such a whirlwind. He seemed to expose himself emotionally to Mary, and she felt she could trust him. He even told her that the first time they made love showed him the two furthest extremes of emotion he had ever experienced. How much he had come to love her and wanted to be bound with her for life and the abject frustration and despair of knowing he had finally found all that he wanted in a wife and mother of his children, but that the second part of the dream could never happen due to his infertility. Mary was happy to have found such a wonderful man who loved her deeply, but she began to grow suspicious of his disappearing act as their relationship entered the new year. One of the biggest problems he had was his timekeeping and that he was so dedicated and devoted to his work that he would drop everything for that. So if we were supposed to be meeting on a date and his work came up and said, uh, oh, we need you to do this, he would just drop it and run and he, he would leave me standing. He would literally stand me up, uh, which was a bit of contention and, and a bit of problem. And it was the only thing that was wrong. Everything else, he was extremely attentive, extremely loving, very kind, very sweet, very gentle. Um, but the only red flag was this, this disappearing act that he would do. Uh, about six months into our relationship, I actually don't know the dates, but, uh, you know, a few months into the relationship, I started getting rather suspicious, uh, because of this, this disappearing act. And I actually, uh, found on company's house an address that he hadn't told me about and went and visited that address and found this house which uh, had children's equipment in the garden and you know antenna on the roof and stuff and I thought he must be married and he's lied to me all along so I called him and said this is you know we need to talk um, by this time we were engaged um, and uh, he came back immediately and said no no you don't understand I need to explain to you so he made me sit on the couch and then he went out to the hallway and he was on the phone for about an hour and a half. And here he was pacing up down the hall and I could hear him talking. And my phone was beeping SIM update and MOD relay and ODCI relay. And I was going, what is going on? What's going on? And my anger sort of dissipated into total curiosity whilst I was sitting there just going, what is the explanation he's going to come up with here? Because it just didn't seem to make any sense. And he came back and he sat down and he said, right, I'm going to explain something to you, but wait until the end before you just, just hold off asking any questions. Just let me talk. And he talked for about an hour or two and explained to me that he had been recruited straight out of college by the ODCI, the, the official department of central intelligence in America, being an American, um, that he was very, very good with computers and it was his computer skills that the CIA wanted to use him for. So he wasn't a spy. He was, he's one of the backroom boys that works with the intelligence community 
And the house that I had seen uh, was actually a safe house. And it was, that's why there was all the antenna on the roof. And of course, he didn't have any children. He couldn't possibly have children. He couldn't father them, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this was, this is what he told me. And he said, you don't have to believe any of this. Uh, it's going to all be proved in time. All you have to do is just wait. And it did. Weirdly enough, there's <laughs> all sorts of things that proved what he said was true, uh, including uh, he was paid via money packets from the Ministry of Defence in Britain. He was uh, used to carry a gun. He had people who would phone me and verify that he was who he said he would, was, that there was um, times that he had to go away, that I would get phone calls now, that I had been vetted and proved. Um, they would phone me to say that he'd been called away and... Um, you know, so he couldn't, so no longer stood me up. And I got messages to say he wouldn't be coming. Um, and I was kind of included into this, you know, wife of an intelligence officer scenario. Now that Mary knew about his real job, Will began to advise her to be aware of her surroundings. If there were strange packages showing up or a person approaching her for information on him, this meant that they were likely trying to find him and kill him. Mary began to grow suspicious of those around her and who might try to get close to her just for information. He told her that it was best if she just keep everything about him to herself. Although still engaged to be married, Mary was in for a shocking surprise in July of 2001. She was pregnant. Instead of being happy over the miracle bestowed upon her now growing family, she was concerned about what Will would think. Would he tell her it wasn't his? Would he say she was unfaithful? He had been so adamant that he could not have children. It was impossible. She gathered herself and called him home. He returned back and turned pale after hearing the news. Mary's heart sank. Then he became elated at the news saying, quote, They always said it was a remote possibility. I just never thought it would actually happen. They were set to wed in July. Invitations had been sent and arrangements had been made. Then, Will disappeared. He would communicate with Mary through anonymous text messages simply labeled as Mod Relay. He said he was alive and well, but the wedding had to be canceled. Mary was embarrassed, but told her friends and family that it would happen just at a later time. He would be gone from July 2001 until May 2002, saying he was in Israel and the West Bank, working to stay steps ahead of suicide bombers in the area. Their daughter was born in February of 2002. Will promised to be home soon, but that was always his response. Uh, and he became my, my absolute world. And having been this strong, confident, independent, sassy woman, I became this this rather sad you know, lonely girl who couldn't tell anyone what was going on. I couldn't talk to anyone. If I told anyone what's happening, I was putting them in danger. Um, and uh, the further it got in, the more scary it got and the more disturbing it got. Uh, because, you know, shortly after we got engaged, uh, I found out I was pregnant, which he said was an absolute miracle that he was told that he won in a million chance he could actually have a child. So this was a miracle baby. And, uh, we had our daughter in 2002, um, so and now we got married in 2002 as well. Uh, and the things he was called away to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian territories, 
So he was actually away for the birth and only met his daughter when she was three months old. You know, it just, things just got worse and worse, but just gradually. And it was constantly promised day by day that things were going to get better. Everything was just, just, just about to resolve itself. Everything day by day was just about to get better. That was the torture. That was the absolute torture. The fact that it was constant, this constant hope. It wasn't despair that, that actually destroys you. It's hope. <laughs> so it's like, but hope that things are actually going to get better and the promise that they're always just about to. Our daughter was only about three or four months old, but he wanted to, and when he came back, he was thin and haggard and really not, not looking well at all. So first things first, he wanted to get a job. So he actually went and got a job with a, shall we say, very large software manufacturing company, um, very well-known one, that uh, was paying him about £10,000 a month to work with them on their IT and, and design new software for them. So he was doing very well and earning a lot of money um, for for a while. And he was really enjoying the work. He was enjoying just being a civilian. Uh, and uh, things were going quite well until somebody he worked with, um, he was he was recognized by somebody who uh, he'd done a uh, undercover operation with. Um, they had threatened to kidnap the kids and rip bits off them and send them through the post if we didn't come up with some money. So we were basically being blackmailed um, by people who are the kind of people who would fly um, planes into the Twin Towers. Yeah, so it was it was quite terrifying. It's quite a terrifying time. I was I was living in fear the whole time of people coming into the house and stealing the kids. He was away most of the time. But yeah, so I was living in fear. I mean, by the time I became pregnant again, so had our son in 2005, and by which time I had run out of money. I'd sold my flat, I'd sold my house insurance, I'd sold my um, life insurance, I'd sold my piano, I'd sold everything to to raise money to try and keep the kids safe. And it was still, still the money drain went on. Still, he kept contacting me saying, you know, there's there's more money needed. These people are going to do horrible things to us. Um, and uh, there wasn't anything left. Eventually, I just had to say, it's gone. I have nothing left. I'd borrowed money off my family. I'd done everything I could. And I literally had nothing left. It was now 2004, and Mary had been living this life of uncertainties for over three years. One day, while Will was out on assignment, Mary found his brown leather satchel. It was something that he always had with him, generally, no matter what. But this time, he left it at home. He had his important papers and gun in there. She was bit by the curiosity bug and opened the bag. She found a marriage certificate and passports for two small children. She was concerned and confused. She knew that Will lied for a living, but he was always transparent with her. She phoned him to return home immediately so they could speak. When he arrived, she told him what she had discovered, and after making a phone call to his superiors... He said that he could finally tell her everything. He said the woman was an asset and was his cover and that it was all a con. She was needed to protect his cover and to protect the family he had with Mary. He managed to convince Mary that everything he had told her was the truth. Things took a turn in November 2005. I got a phone call. He, I got a phone call initially from the police saying, where's your car? And I said, my husband's driving it down in England. And they said, thank you, and hung up. 
And then I got a phone call from Will saying, um, you, you don't know what you've done. You don't know what you've done. This is terrible. And it turns out that actually he had a, Will Jordan had a fiance who had, he'd been using her credit card illegally. And the police, she'd set up a police sting to catch him when he used the credit card to pay for the repairs in the car. And when they found the car, they found papers pertaining to his original wife in the car. They found that I owned the car and I just described this as being driven by my husband. So they knew he was a bigamist. Um, they found the taser that he'd issued me in the car. So he was charged with carrying a firearm. And it also turns out that he's also a convicted pedophile. So they charged him with also with not registering his dress under the Sex Offenders Act. So he was arrested. And it all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. <clears throat> that he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money, me being one of them. Um, and my children, my two lovely children by him, have 13 brothers and sisters by six different women that I have found so far. And that's that will be the tip of the iceberg. That will be the tip of the iceberg. There will be far more. And that's spread across America and the UK. You heard her right. William Jordan was a bigamist. Not only was Mary his second wife, but he had children and women across the world. Mary describes what happens next. The weirdest thing is that everybody expects that when I get the phone call from another wife saying that she's married to my husband, has been for 16 years, she has five children to him, she knows the nanny has two children, etc. This this bizarre thing that it would be a shattering phone call. But in a very, very strange way, my life had been so horrendous for so long. And to turn out and realize that actually it was all just this one man, this terror that I'd been living in of my children being kidnapped and murdered uh, was actually not real. So in a lot of ways, getting that phone call was like getting a get out of jail free card. It was a relief. It was a release to know that actually it was just him. There wasn't this conspiracy going on. There weren't people and, and unsavories and horrible people out, out to get me. It was just him. So weirdly enough, actually getting the phone call was a relief. And um, it was bizarre. I mean, I, it was a very physical reaction when I got the phone call from the other wife saying that this was real, this was her, um, and all the information she gave me. I felt very physical. I mean, it was like my blood ran hot around my body and, and I was shaking. And, you know, it was like it was <laughs> the only way I can describe it, it was like coming out of the matrix. It was like the walls of reality just crumbled around me and I could see everything very clearly for the first time. And it was like all of the brainwashing, all the, the, the controls that he put on me over the six years I was with him just crumbled away. And I suddenly could see very clearly he, who he was, what he'd done. Um, but it was a release because I knew, I knew absolutely that day that it was all him. There was nobody else after me. The surprises kept coming for Mary, and on April 5th, 2005, she received a phone call that convinced her the life she had and knew with Will Jordan was a complete lie. I will not be sharing the name of the woman Mary speaks with at the request of both women. Um, as soon as, as soon as she, she phoned up and she was, she was like, I want to see you say face to face. We need to talk. So she immediately said, I'm, I'm driving up to see you. So she was coming up from 
uh, Oxford, I think it was. But we sat for hours. We sat for about six hours and we talked and she showed me photographs of her children who look exactly like my children. I mean, they're just, they're, they're like the midwich cuckoos they're they're so similar all the children you, you when you see one you just go yep that, that's one of his kids that's one of them because they all look the same they've got this i don't know what it is but I look about them but they all look the same william allen jordan would eventually be charged with bigamy dishonesty offenses failing to register as a sex offender and illegally possessing a stun gun in total he had married one woman in 1992 Mary in 2002, and had several relationships with other women, including the nanny of his children. The sex offender charge came as a result of him being previously convicted in 1997 for three indecent assaults on a girl under the age of 13. He did this to drive a wedge between the young woman and her mother. They were getting too close to each other. For the aforementioned offenses, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Mary had the daunting task of informing her children of their father's misdeeds. I mean, the, the two most devastating things I had to do was to tell my mother and tell, and tell my children. Um, I had to tell my mother quite quickly because we found out very quickly afterwards as well that she was terminally ill. And I needed to tell my mother to cut me out of the will because Will Jordan had not only taken you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds for me, but he'd also left me 56,000 pounds in debt with credit cards that he'd taken under my name uh, and used as his spouse cards. Um, so I had to tell my mother to, to, to cut me out of the will for that reason. Uh, and I also then to tell my children as well. And I did think long and hard about what I should tell the children. And I thought, well, I could, I could tell them that he's, he's left me or he's, or he's died or something. I could tell them a lie. Um, but one day they're going to find out the truth. One day it's going to come out and they're going to know that the mother lied to them. Uh, I could just not tell them anything and then they're going to grow up being confused and, and upset by the fact that, you know, I didn't tell them anything. And I realized pretty quickly that the only thing I could do was just be honest. Um, telling the kids, um, I told them was by saying, if your father was blind, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't blame you. But your father has no emotion. He has no empathy and no remorse. He's, he is devoid of conscience and remorse. Um, I've never said in my life, I've never said what a swine or any other rude word that you might say about someone. I've never said that never to the children because that would never be helpful to them to be angry or, or bitter or twisted about it. I've always been very rational, very logical with it. And just said, look, this is what's happened. This is what it, you know, he's done. We found out that he has these other children. We recovered together and we cried together and we talked together and we, we found out, we understood together what was going on and, and why he'd done what he'd done. He only served 30 months in jail and was deported back to the United States where he was free to begin his con again. He is a psychopath. He's not a bit of a bad lad. He's not just a con man. He's somebody who enjoys manipulating people. He enjoys this game. And he, for the most part, gets away with it. You know, he he runs three or four or five, six, seven relationships at a time. And he rips them all off for money. And he, he that's that's his career. That's what he does. He impregnates women and rips them off for money. And anything 
the means to which he does that uh, is, you know, he, he he's very creative. He could quite easily find a millionaireess, even a young, attractive millionaireess. He is good enough at what he does to be able to to marry a millionaireess and settle down and have a lovely, quiet, comfortable life. He would not, because if he's a psychopath, he is. He would be unbelievably bored. Um, when I first wrote the book, people asked me whether I was going to write it on my own name, that uh, I should somehow be embarrassed by what had happened. And there is this perception of idiocy if you have been conned. And the truth is that it, it's not the idiots that get conned. It's the people who don't think it will happen to them. It's the people who feel confident and intelligent and wise. And often, actually, it's the ones who, who would say, oh, I'd never get caught by that, who actually would. So the ones I always feel sorry for the people that, that look at, look at my story and say, oh, she must have been desperate. She must have been needy. She must have been, you know, so desperate for a relationship. She accepted anything because those are the people that are actually most at risk because they don't think they can get caught. And if you want to keep yourself safe from psychopaths, learn about psychopaths learn and understand how they do what they do and most important is actually accept that they exist accept that there are people out there one percent of society one in a hundred who have no conscience no remorse no empathic response to other people's pain and they can do anything they want to them life is a sims game and we are all sims characters which are just there for them to play with and manipulate and if you don't think that's real, if you think that, that everybody has a conscience and everybody has some sort of form of emotion, then you are at risk because that's what I was. I thought everybody was basically nice. Everybody was basically decent and that everybody basically had a conscience. And it didn't cross my mind that people like him actually existed. What an incredible story. And that's just half of Mary's story. If you want to listen to the full hour long episode check out the True Crime Fan Club and search for the episode titled Mary Turner Thompson. Also, you can find Mary Turner's book titled The Bigamist on Amazon. And again, please check out my friend's podcast at truecrimefanclub.com or on Twitter at TCFCPod. Lainey, thank you so much for sharing this episode with my listeners. Also, music for this show was composed by We Talk of Dreams. So this is it, the last show of season one. I got some fun things cooking for you. I mean, I won't spoil it too much, but the story that I'm reporting on is about a murder that took place 25 years ago. A murder no one was even looking into. The killer thought he was on his deathbed when he confessed. He thought he was dying, but guess what? He got better and is locked up. I'm telling you, it's a jaw-dropping case, and no one in the media is reporting on it. So, my plan is to just go out to the small town and start knocking on doors and, and try to find out why he did it and was pretending to be someone else. I have no idea what I'm going to end up with. You know, I first tested out the format for Pretend Radio with my cousin, who was happy to share his story with me. And when I finished it, I, I mean, it was great. And then... I met the former cult member, and after that three-hour interview, I was like, damn, I think I got myself a podcast. So, now that I know what this show is all about, and what you're expecting, I need some time to get these great stories. 
my job for the next few months is to make a kick-ass season two. Your job is to tell everyone you know about the show. I mean, everyone. Like, grab their phones and download it for them. I'm telling you, that's the best kind of marketing. Also, sign up for the mailing list at pretendradio.org. That way, I can let you know when I'm back on the air. And find me on Twitter and shoot me a message at pretend underscore radio. And one more thing. If you like the show and want to see me do this full time without any interruptions, consider donating a buck a show. Just go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. All right, that's my time. Thank you for listening and we'll meet again soon. Creative Babble.